Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And we are incredibly excited to have Carl Heckenberg here today, who is the CEO and President of Emigrant Partners and its affiliated company, Fiduciary Network. Carl, thank you very much for stopping by the podcast. We're excited to have you here today. No, it's great. I I, I appreciate uh, the invite. Yeah, we know that you've been very busy um, and we know that you are very busy. You've been very active over you know, the last year plus um, at Emigrant. And I'm really excited. We haven't done too many interviews on the RA Edge podcast talking about you know one of the things that's been really reshaping M&A activity in the RIA channel quite a bit over the last several years which is you know the, the rise of minority investors you know companies like yours um that are starting to play and have a bigger seat at the table and play a much bigger role in you know, the evolution of the RIA channel and you've announced the several partnerships deals um, and investments over the last several months and I'm sure you have a lot more that you're working on here um, that we can at least hint at um, during the discussion but Carl, before we get into too much detail uh, about some of your recent activity and what the vision is, I think it really would be helpful to learn a little bit more about Emigrant and just share with our audience what problem you solve for the RAs and the firms that you're working with in the marketplace. So please, Carl, a little bit of background on Emigrant, if you would. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I always start where the where the business started uh, with, with, you know, the founder of the business, which was Mark Early. You know, the... You know, the business of fiduciary network when it started in call it 2006 2007 and i think you know as, as you said you know that the problem that they were trying to solve for you know really similar to focus and and you know a few others at that time was how to stay independent but how to provide some liquidity to the founders uh so the firm could stay dependent independent provide financing to younger partners to buy their equity and and you know i think in that regards the, historically you know the options if you had a you know independent wealth management business was really sell at a pretty steep discount to you know the the internal next gen or sell to a bank or another raa and and you'd probably have to take a note and you know, that that was at a little bit of a higher number. But, you know, I, th I think that's how, you know, really focus and fiduciary network and, and some of the pioneers in the phase, space, you know, around minority financing or, or focus also do control. But I, I think that's really, you know, where these businesses started. I think that's shifted, in my opinion, a lot just in the last three to four years. And I, I always say, and, and we actually have a competitor who kind of comes in and says, you know, I'm here to solve a problem. I, I I actually don't feel like we're really necessarily solving a problem. I think we're, you know, we're sitting down with firms and, and talking about, you know, as, as you were mentioning, and, you know, before we started taping, what what are the options that owners of these businesses have? And and I think more often than not, we we, to our own detriment, will explain to people, you know, you're probably best off selling. 
and here's kind of the buyer landscape and and here's what you should do. And then I think for, for you know, a, a smaller group of firms, we end up being a very good fit. And um, I think once you chip away all the options and all the things that they don't want, you know, then I, I think we emerge, you know, in, in a very kind of unique space. And obviously that's very self-serving, but, um, you know, the capital that's required to do very long-term uh, kind of minority passive investing is, you know, very different from the capital that's raised by private equity sponsors. And and that's really where more activity occurs in the space. But yeah, that that's, you know, it really started as a financing mechanism for, for founders and to keep the firms independent. I think now, you know, the average age of the founder that we're investing in is probably 15 years younger than the firms that we were investing in even a decade ago. Uh, you know, a lot of the founders now are in their 40s or 50s. You know, the firms are really looking at putting on some capital to the balance sheet, growing the firm, helping professionalize and institutionalize the business. And, and you know, that jump from two to five billion or five to 10 billion, I, I think, you know, all the firms that we end up partnering with are acknowledging the capital is, you know, certainly one part of the equation. But I, even if you look at our team breakup, 50% of our team has a background in consulting and advisory for wealth and asset management firms. And, you know, that that's where we've kind of really put our chips and resources is saying, look, capital is bountiful. There's no shortage of it, although more so in the last four months or so. But really, how, how do we help you grow and then create a more flexible, tailored outcome? And And that can be we may be permanent capital or we may be, you know, partners with you for two to three years like we were with Parallel and Audis and then helping everybody have a great outcome and in, in selling to a sponsor. And I think having that flexible capital and, and you know, not coming in with a thesis that we're going to go out and really lever up the business and do a ton of acquisitions, you know, which is really where private equity focuses their time and energy, mainly because their timeline is different. You know, that's generally the big differentiator is we can kind of tailor the capital, we can spend more time and we have more expertise on, you know, growing and, and advising very fast growing wealth management firms on what that next leg of the journey looks like, uh, but doing it in a way where we're not on the board and, and we're not really getting involved in the business. We're really there as kind of a of counsel advisor. And I, you know, I appreciate that you've had yeah, uh, sort of an evolution in the types of firms that you're working with now, right? Versus, you know, five, 10 years ago. I, I'm very interested to learn more about, you know, what you're looking for specifically. Uh, we've seen just over the last couple of months, right? Um, this month, the investment that you've made in Steel Peak. Um, also saw earlier this year, you announced the Dakota Wealth Management deal. Um, and we've yeah. actually had of the 20 some odd firms that you're in your partner network. We've had several of them on the RA Edge podcast. So I feel like I have an idea of what you're looking for. But I think, you know, Carl, to hear from you directly, what does an ideal partner firm look like to you and to Emigrant? And what are some of the characteristics of a high quality firm? Yeah, I mean, even if you go back to the deals that we really started doing, uh, you know, when when Immigrant Partners was formed and, and that, that affiliation with the fiduciary network, you know, and you go back to our first deal, which was Northrop Partners, and then you kind of jump through Stratos and, 
you know, all, all of the great firms that we've kind of partnered with, you know, the, the thing that we're always looking for, I mean, look, there's always these, these quantitative measures, you know, is the firm growing net of market? Is it adding clients? Are the clients, you know, I, I mean, all those kind of quantitative things that you're looking for just in case the market slows down, which it is. But I think what, what we're really looking for after you clear all those kind of, you know, I would say gating issues is, one, does the firm have a sincere interest in working with us as a partner? You know, are they going to listen to our advice? I always joke with people, we'll, we'll give you the advice. The nice part about the arrangement is you don't have to take. But, you know, we want people that I think, you know, do, you know, we feel like we can learn something from them. Uh, but also conversely, they feel like there's some real value to to what we can add to the organization. Because we look back at the organizations we've worked with, whether it's a past owner and advisor investments or a region or firms. I mean, a lot of these firms have doubled, tripled, quadrupled in size. I mean, Northrack's gone from a billion dollars to four and a half in, in call it four years and parallel doubled in two years. And, you know, I think a lot of that is just working with great management teams who, who want to listen. They want to broaden their ownership, but I think they're also just very honest about what the future looks like, you know, and, and being honest about where their challenges are, where they feel like they have some weaknesses, even as we're doing diligence and we talk about areas for improvement, you know, how do they react to that? And, and when you look at firms like Steel Peak, you know, it's a great example, great firm, young management team growing like a weed leveraging sand but you know when we really got in and we started talking about how to how to you know really broaden their investment platform or how to really leverage the already amazing growth within sand you know it's a really productive conversation it's a back and forth and and that's really i think what you're looking for you know look we we always are in the minority economically i don't really believe in control investing in human capital businesses i i think that's a bit of a fool's errand and and I think, you know, we we try and create this alignment with these guys to create better outcomes and, you know, be flexible enough. And I think that's that's where we end up winning. You know, when we give people our references, we we don't just give them two or three and it's not even the 20 that we're invested in. We give them the nine firms that we've exited, mm -hmm. including partnerships like Pathstone and Sarity and, and some really big, fantastic firms out there and, you know, suggest that they call all of them. And I think that's that's where we end up winning. But I mean, I think that, you know, as we're underwriting these businesses, it's really how do we interact with the team? How do they interact with us? And, and you know, do we feel like together we can help build a lot more equity value in in their business? And, you know, look, if you have a stronger operating company, even if margins come down or multiples come down, you're going to end up in a better spot no matter what, <laughs> you know? Right. So yeah. I, I think it's really, do we fundamentally agree on how to build equity value in a business? Because if it's just straight leverage and financial engineering, I, I think that that game is coming to, to a bit of an end, even as we're seeing people raise capital in the market right now, you know, it's, it's, they're kind of being forced into a position where they have to raise capital. And, you know, that that's not a great time to to do it when you feel like you have to. No, definitely not. And I think, you know, you're in a very unique position, you know, not just because the number of the firms you work with, the size of those firms, uh, you also mentioned the firms that you've exited, but, you know, as a minority investor in some of these firms, yeah, I think you, you probably have, you know, a lot of visibility that maybe many of the guests that we've had on the RA podcast don't have across the business as a whole. And I think, Carl, if you wouldn't mind, I think we talk about 
minority investors. We've seen you know more firms you know make more investments over the last several years. I remember being at Echelon and doing some research on this and seeing from you know 2020 to 2021 the number of minority investments in the RIA segment tripled, right, in a 12-month period. What does a minority deal actually look like? Um, and not necessarily in terms of deal structure, although it would be good to get a sense for what the ideal sort of stake would be, but also what does the relationship look like? If I own 19.9% you know, of a firm, how much say do I have, right, in the strategy, the vision, and whatnot? So I'd love to just get a better sense for what a working partnership looks yeah. like as a minority investor. Yeah. And and I, again, maybe we're probably overly transparent sometimes <laughs> to, to our own detriment, but when I talk to a seller and we kind of talk about the landscape and we talk about who the control buyers are, and those may be, you know, great independently held firms like, you know, a Mineta in St. Louis or, or, you know, firms like that or a Brown mm-hmm. advisory kind of what life looks like in them relative to, you know, the sponsor backed acquirers. And and there's some great ones out there like Hightower and, and Bob runs a great organization, but like kind of the differences between that. But then even when we get into the nuances of, you know, what people call kind of minority investing, it's, you know, look, there are, there's, a, there's more activity because the sponsors in a lot of cases have been forced to go from control to minority because that's opened up the market. Um, mm-hmm. But if, if you look at the provisions within their documents and, and, you know, the governance, it's really a control deal with minority economics. And and so, you know, we talk to firms about that because, you know, are they going to have vetoes? You know, they're going to be on the board like that. that that's almost a, a, a certainty. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're really going to have a lot more authority. And and ultimately, one of the things that they're going to have that we don't build into our our, our deal structure is you know, they're going to have a put, like they're going to have the ability to go back to you in three years and say, I'm selling my position. And, and that seems to, to, I think some sellers like, oh yeah, sure. Like they'll want to sell their position. I don't think you understand what position that can put you in, right? <laughs> because, right. you know, they, they may have a lot more influence over forcing you into a control transaction or, you know, something else. Whereas, you know, when we come in and we say, look, you know, the, the people that are probably most like us and, and, you know, look, Kudu's a great firm. I, I think the world of Charlie, uh, you know, the guys at, at Sinusure, uh out in, out in Salt Lake, you know, Keith and, and Randy are, are great investors in the space. They're probably more like us. Uh, Sinusure is probably more of like a family office. You know, it's what's their cost of capital? What is their expectation of return? How how long can they hold it? What kind of where are they funding it out of? Is it a fund? Is it a balance sheet? You know, and it's always interesting because when you sit down with wealth managers and you're going through this, I, I always appreciate it. a lot of them put their hand up and they're like, I'm not sure what you're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And these are guys that do investments for a living, but this is this is very different. You know, they've never sold a business. They don't they don't really understand kind of what's what what some of these things mean. And and you kind of go through and you talk about even innocuous things like, oh, you know, the sponsor said, you know, I'm going to have control. But there was one word in there that said the the board will be held to a fiduciary standard. And it's like, all right, well, that that is atypical. And here's what it could mean for you. And they're like, oh, that one thing within there suddenly completely turns their business upside down and and could force them to do something they don't want to do. And 
I think, you know, when we kind of parse through it with people, we say, look, you know, the, the, you know, kind of the things that we want, the protections that we want are one, when we underwrite it, we assume that we're never getting our money back. And that means it's permanent capital, right? So we have to get it back through distributions, which means we are going to want, say, over equity issuance, or we have to agree to take it, Perry pursue with you. We want to make sure that we have a consent over you taking a debt, outside debt, and we provide term debt, but they want to bring in outside debt or over certain levels that it'll need our response you know, hiring and firing of key people. But I mean, we we actually outlined that up front in our term sheet. And and part of that was what, what I found out very quick is I would rather be very upfront very early with the, you know, the bankers who, who all kind of know us and, and know our structure. But even with the sellers, like, here's what we're going to ask for. And then when you actually get an agreement from us, if, if we go into exclusivity, like there's no surprises. Because I'm I'm not interested in getting you, you know, seven months pregnant and then springing a big surprise on you uh, because these are really designed to be long term partnerships mm-hmm. and, and both sides have to come out of the transaction. Because even though the transaction is labor intensive and it's hard and it's time consuming, like the hard work starts after you close. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's not getting the deal done. It's adding value. And I always tell people, look, my ability to do business in the future is 100% predicated on the 30 people that I've been partnered with either currently or in the past saying good things about what it's like to work with us. And so I, I think that starts with the transaction and not feeling like somebody got bullied in the transaction or, you know, they got their arm twisted. They kind of walked away and they understood why we need certain things and what's market and what's not market. And, you know, so and so I think even when you chop up, you know, different parts of the control market or the minority market, like, once you really understand how that capital is being formed and invested, and and we talk about, you know, where we're getting our capital from, and and it's we don't raise any third party capital, and the flexibility that gives us, I think a light bulb goes on and people go, okay, you know, I I get the difference between you and somebody that's investing out of a growth equity fund, but mm-hmm. they're buying you know, a minority investment, and sometimes it's even not not to get too deep into the weeds, but like sometimes it's understanding like, look, somebody's going to make a fifty million dollar minority investment into your business out of a $5 billion growth fund. Does that make any sense to you? Like the normal check size for them is probably three to 700 million. Like, so you're 50. So what, what does that imply? And what it really implies is either a, they're having a hard time deploying the capital or B they intend to do transformational acquisitions because they've got a three year hold period and they're expecting to write another hundred or $150 million dollar, preferred equity check to help you buy a business at your size or bigger, you know, are you kind of signed up for that? And I think it's just all like checking the boxes. And then once you get to the end of the list, I feel like in any of these, like there should only be a couple of parties that you're like, all right, this fits my criteria. So we, we probably talked to 10 people and nine people aren't really a fit for what we do. But like when we talked to, you know, when we met Coda a year and a half ago uh, in Australia, we weren't looking to make an investment in Australia. What we right. found is a rapidly growing firm with a great partnership group, with a great group of individuals that was really building something, you know, unique. And I think that we were the first meeting. Uh, I remember meeting the guys out in Park City and they were in from Australia, fresh off of quarantine. And, you know, like 
they circled back three weeks later and it was like, you know, it was love at first sight on both sides. And, (laughs) and so I I think once you, once you kind of understand that and work through it, you know, I always tell a seller, like, you know, it really shouldn't just be about the capital because there's plenty of capital options. Yeah. I think you're in such a unique position and thank you for the background there. It's the first time we've really gone deep right on what the nature of those relationships looks like. And I think that that's incredibly value, especially you know, knowing that a lot of our listeners are trying to understand you know, if they're somebody that you're currently talking to, you might be talking to at some point, right? What does it look like to work with you? Um, and I think you know, there are so many options right now, yeah. uh, but you, know, you are in a position that's really unique in the sense that you're not necessarily looking uh, to work with people who are exiting in the next 15 minutes, right? Um, you're talking to people that are looking to build and to grow, right? Um, they tend to be you know, younger, have a vision, um, and are actively invested in being you know, the best version of themselves, but just need a partner to get there. So I appreciate all you know that color. That is you know really exciting to share with our audience. I, I will have to ask about your outlook for 2023. I know we're past January when no one's allowed to say Happy New Year anymore. Hope your year is off to a great start. That said, though, I do right. have to ask for your take on just the overall M&A environment. We've obviously seen some exceptional periods over the last you know, four or five years. Um, saw it started to slow a little bit last year, still yeah. you know, some pretty significant activity. I am curious, you know, where do you see activity levels now compared to say a year ago? Um, and where do you think we'll end up at the end of 2023? Yeah, I you know, 22 was kind of a, a, a kooky year because it, it, it was really starting off strong. And then you had the, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that really kind of pumped the brakes on the market for most of the summer. And then for us, it really picked up in the fall. You know, like I said, we don't we don't have to raise third party capital. So we actually were the busiest at the end of last year when I think capital was pretty sparse. Our second busiest period behind that was actually March, April, May of 2020 during COVID. And that's when a lot of buyers lost financing. So for us, we kind of lick our chops when when the credit markets get a little bit more challenging and uh you know, the, the equity markets take a dive because I, I think firms really do step back and a lot of the big buyers. Mm-hmm. What what I've noticed this year and, and really, you know, the end of last year is, you know, you're seeing the big private equity backed platforms have to refresh their cap tables. So they're bringing in structured equity. They can't draw on their term loan facilities anymore, even though none of them will admit it. And they're they're doing deals, but they're highly selective. And, and, you know, it's like, look, I'm not doing a deal in Des Moines because I don't have a presence in Des Moines, but hey, I, I do have an office in Austin, so I'm going to get really aggressive on doing that because I can create some scale in Austin. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that makes all the sense in the world, whereas like two years ago, it was like, we'll do a deal anywhere. Like financing right. was plentiful. Everything was priced at L plus four and and there was no amortization and like everybody could just go way out on the risk curve in terms of leverage. And now it's like the lenders are really pumping the brakes. They can't draw on their facilities or they're hitting financial covenant kind of incurrence levels. And, and, you know, there's all these things happening. And so what we're noticing is, you know, that the big buyers are really slowing down. They're getting much more focused. If you look at the deal activity for the big kind of top name aggregators like used to be one or two deals was announced per day now it's like kind of one or two per week and you know some of them are smaller deals or 
you know, their acquisitions by portfolio companies. So I think that'll persist. I mean, the sponsors are still, I would say, reasonably active in the space. The only thing that I think will change in the back half of 23 is sponsors still have some capital that they raised in 21 when the market was pretty good. And they're still deploying that because, you know, normally kind of capital is raised and then it's deployed kind of over a three-year period. 2021 was kind of the last, you know, kind of big fundraising year. So I think there's still some money to put out from from those guys. They are being more selective. They are trying to restructure deals. I think they're trying to, you know, as they rework their models and they understand financing is much more expensive at the portfolio company level. Like, you know, that just changes the dynamics. But, you know, they're they're still out there and they're still pretty active. You know, I think you're going to see one or two big recaps of some big platforms this year, similar to like when we saw Genstar come into Serity, uh, which Kurt and that business just have built something incredibly special. But, you know, I think you'll see some big headline deals like that this year. So you'll still see some big sponsors. Obviously, we saw, you know, the big deal this year is Clayton taking Focus Private, which I think is a, a brilliant deal, but it all depend on what approach Clayton takes there. And, and we can talk about that or not talk about that. But I, I think that, you know, the back half of the year is going to get a little bit more challenging because I do think the sponsors didn't have a great fundraising year last year. I think this year has been pretty. And and so, you know, you get into end of 23, 24, like I, I think really good fast growing firms, the multiples aren't going to go down much. And those those multiples, unfortunately or fortunately, are still probably low to mid-teens, uh, sometimes even higher. You know, but we got to a period where they were like 20 and 23. Like that was insane. So mm-hmm. they they have pivoted off of that. But I think, you know, it it we may see a little bit more of a softening towards the end of the year, beginning of next year, as a lot of that 21 capital is kind of deployed now. And, you know, some of the things that they've been raising now are more kind of more structured or, or you know, more distressed and the return profiles are different for those types of funds and the structure, the investments that they make. And, you know, there's been a lot of money raised more on the distress side lately than, you know, kind of growth equity. Yeah. And I think that's a great summary of you know, where we are right now. It does feel like yeah, the deals are starting to slow. I like your assessment of you know, how we in the media world are covering yeah, M&A activity as a good barometer. We've been from daily news, right, to weekly news. Um, <laughs> and that's very much the case. I think what will be interesting, this is more personal opinion, is, um, and it ties into a point with what you, a point that you made earlier. After you know, three or four years of you know, incredible activity levels, to me, it's really about what does the integration look like um, and how successful are your buyers and sellers at making this several hundred deals, right? Almost a thousand, I'd say, if you went back to the last, you know, four years, that's really what I think this year will be, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot that we haven't focused on all that much, right? Um, We talk about the deal, we talk about the headline, uh, but we don't talk about the Monday morning after the deal. And we certainly don't talk about what happens well after that, right? But we don't talk about the Monday morning after the deal. And we certainly don't talk about what happens well after that, right? So to me, I think if I'm fast forwarding 12 months and putting a headline on the RIA M&A activity article that will undoubtedly write, it it could be more about what did one plus one equal, right? Right. Um, was it more than two? Um, so w- with that, Carl, I would love to just get your final take and your final thoughts as we kind of look ahead at 2023, specifically through the lens of you know, Emigrant and the seat that you have. 
What are some of the things that you think will have to happen for Emigrant to continue to be successful and continue continue to have the impact that you're having on shaping the RIA industry? Well, I, I, I think being that that source of, you know, kind of transparent information about what it takes to build a good business when you're probably getting out over your skis and look, we can help to an extent, but, you know, look, there, there are times where, you know, like I said, there, I think your point around integration is important. And when we advise our companies, Code is a great example. They did their first acquisition about five months after we finished the partnership in Perth. Uh, they're, they're in Sydney, you know, large acquisition. And it was it was a lot of work for them. We we gave them a lot of advice that this is going to be harder than you think. But like, don't build out a forecast that says you're going to do one of these a year. Like, do this, get it right. And and look, I think there are guys who who did that very well early on. You know, there's guys that really I think that's what's going to separate the quality businesses. So like, Sarity does an amazing job of integrating businesses. Bob mm-hmm. at Hightower does great job of doing it you know marty at mariner you know peter at creative like there are guys out there that are really building national businesses right and then there's a bunch of guys out there just piecing together a bunch of crap and and it's not that the underlying businesses are crap it's that the post integration post closing roadmap like there is none or it's super loose and I, I think that those are the businesses go back to when Wealth Trust fell apart, you know, and, and that kind of collapsed. And, and, you know, most people don't even remember that or even talk about it, but like it happened. Cap Trust is a great business. Like they're going to be fine. You know, <laughs> there are businesses yeah. out there that are really executing on that. Like the ones that I've mentioned are Adam and Buckingham that are doing great jobs of building, you know, amazing businesses. And then I think there are a bunch of guys out there just doing financial engineering and, you know, those businesses, you know, aren't, aren't going to stick. And, and, you know, our barometer is always like, if, you know, who's, who's around, you know, two or three years after the deal closes, like who's still showing up, who's in, who's around. And, you know, if, if most of the principals are gone, you know, I, I would say it's a pretty good indication that it was a purely financial transaction. And I, I just don't think it works. So, I mean, I, I think that we will see, you know, some of these some of these great platforms, like I'd mentioned. I think we work well with all of those folks. We've sold to to Sarity, you know, mm-hmm. we've we've you know sold to some of these guys and and you know, we advise our firms like, okay, you know, maybe it's time to think about doing something more, more, you know, high level and, and really transformational. And, and sometimes it's like, no, you're, you're building something special and it's better off to go alone. But I think it's just being objective and, and aligned in the outcome. And it, it sounds so simple and basic, but in my opinion, like in experience, like that's actually pretty hard to come by when you're talking to capital providers. Because, you know, I, I always tell people, look, we're our primary goal is to build equity at your level, not my level. Like, I'm not trying to build a business to IPO. I'm not trying to build a business to sell to a private equity firm. I, I don't mark the equity value of my business at anything. You know, it it's uh, the value that we create is at, down at your level. And and that's that's pretty material. Because if you look at even some of the basic data of number of firms over $5 billion, it's doubled in the last four years. 
Yeah. You know, the number of $5 billion firms has doubled and, and, you know, this market is only going to get bigger and bigger. And I think the capital solutions are going to have to get more sophisticated than just private equity growth funds. And, and that's really what it's been. And I, I think we're, we're in for a really interesting period of time over the next, you know, five to 10 years, because I think there are going to be different pools of capital coming in. I think they are going to be a little bit more sophisticated. And I think they are going to stop focusing on financial engineering and start focusing on how to build real value in these businesses. And I think that's an exciting time to own a big RIA right now, as opposed to just saying, well, we're going to grow, we're going to take in some private equity capital, do you know a crap ton of M&A, and then try and sell it at an even higher multiple you know, somebody. And anybody that's done a lot of M&A knows it, it's not easy work. You know, there are guys that, like I said, like Buckingham and so on, that do it really well in Sarity. But, you know, that takes a lot of infrastructure, more so than most RIAs want to build out. And we we meet a lot of mid-sized firms that are like suddenly like wake up one day and say, we want to spend all our time on M&A. I, I always joke, I spend more time talking people out of M&A than I do talking them into it. <laughs> and and it's like, and, and, and I mean, not to ramble on this, but like, yeah. You know, I would say, look, you're going to be one of 25 to 30 buyers in the mix. Like, what makes you better than a Buckingham or Sarity or a Pathstone mm-hmm. or a Colony or, you know, a Mariner? Like, and, and really, like, look yourself in the mirror and really ask, why are you so different? And, like, I can help tell you how you can make yourself more different. Um, but, you know, you, you've got to be realistic about it. Yep. And I think it's uh, having been through... <laughs> A fair amount of M and A. Um, it is a full time job once you're down that track, right? Um, and it's life changing. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's a more philosophical question, right? Um, not do you want to be doing M and A, but should you be doing it? So I'm not surprised you spend more time talking people out of deal making, right? Than well, and, and and like why do you want it? Yeah, yeah. You know, can can you are you growing so strongly organically? Because if you can't get the organic growth in your own organization down, why would anybody sell to you other than it's just a financial transaction and you're the dumb money in the room? Right. So I think that where like really great firms like EP Wealth have been able to demonstrate like we can help you grow faster. I think Bob could probably show convincingly at Hightower like he can help you grow faster than you were growing before. Like Stratos does that very well when they're out marketing and that's, yeah. that's from one. And, you know, Jeff Conception, who who you've had on the podcast, like yeah. Jeff can show advisors that they'll grow, you know, 50 to 150% faster working with him because they're going to take, you know, and, and I think you have to be able to show that to people because if you can't show that your business is growing other than market, why would anybody sell to you? Yep. No, no, and, is... and I think a lot of guys are just like M&A will solve my problem. And it's like, no, it's just going to make your problem worse. And you're going to end up with a lot more leverage for, for you know, you're still going to have the same underlying problem. Yeah, it's uh, is a really great way to describe the M&A environment. It has its own energy, <laughs> right? I can understand right. why people are drawn to it. And especially when you're hearing about it and there's this FOMO, um, I can certainly understand why people are kicking the tires as much as they are. Um, but I think that it is such a massive commitment of time, energy, and you know, just resource that you really need to be clear on what you're trying to accomplish if it's the right time for you and if it's right for you 
in general. So, I mean, Carl, thank you for walking through the mechanics of the deal making, talking through what the you know, the structure looks like with a minority investor, but most importantly, the psychology of it. Um, it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, and I can say, you know, we will spend more time on it, not just on the podcast here, but also at the RA Edge, the main event, May 21st, um, coming up right around the corner um, in Q2, where we'll get into not just the M&A activity, deal structure and valuation, but we will look a little bit more you know, philosophically as to you know what it takes to make a deal successful after the close. So Carl, I think you've touched on a year's worth of content here in just you know, a half an hour. So we appreciate you stopping by the RAA podcast. And thank you so much for spending some time sharing your thoughts and congrats on all the success that you've had at Emigrant. Yeah, thanks. No, this has been great. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for stopping by the RA podcast and listening to the interview here with Carl Heckenberg from Emigrant. Carl, again, thank you for joining and sharing your thoughts and your observations and perceptions with our audience. And just a reminder, everybody, I mentioned briefly at the tail end, the RIA Edge main event you know, is coming up on May 21st at the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. So mark your calendars. We hope to see all of you there. And on behalf of the Wealth Management Team and Informer, again, I'm Mark Bruno. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.